You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, uh, you just promised our international guests that we weren't going to ask any gotcha questions, but I am going to ask one right out of the gate. Is it soccer or football? Ooh, hard question. <laughs> Simple answer. Simple answer is it doesn't matter because I don't watch either. Oh, oh there you go. There you that go. Might the only, I might be the only Nigerian in the world that does not care about soccer or football. Oh, there yeah. you go. Okay. <laughs> That's a flex. I like that. I like I like that you're a man willing to stand apart. So. Yeah. The, the, the man standing apart, by the way, for those who are like, okay, now I need to know, because you need to know, uh, is Wale Talabi, who is joining us for lots of reasons, uh, not least of which is that your ne- your newest collection of short stories, uh, Convergence Problems, is coming out in February, just a couple of weeks from now. So congratulations on that. Really exciting. Thank you. Um, it is very exciting. I just had my first novel out a few months ago, like six months ago. And now I have another book, my third book, second collection, um, mm-hmm. which contains some of my my favorite stories I've written. So I'm, I'm excited to have it out there in the world. That must That's be a awesome. lot of fun to kind of look back through the things that you've written over the last several years of your, of your labors and kind of like gather them together just so. Yeah. And um, I think for me in particular with this collection, I I had a theme that I was kind of playing into, which is this idea of stories where they largely involve technology, but also where the characters encounter problems and difficulties. Um, sometimes they overcome them, sometimes they do not. And that's kind of where the title also comes from, Convergence Problems. It's also taken from something with my day job as an engineer, where I, I run computer simulations a lot. And sometimes we the computer simulations don't work and we run into convergence problems as well. And I was pulling on the parallel between those two. Um, so yeah, I, I, I enjoy that process of digging through the work and seeing connective tissue between different stories and then putting them together as a, a tasting menu, if you will, of stuff I'm interested in and what I like to write. Yeah. Yeah. Am I allowed to ask what you, what an example of a thing that you might run a simulation on in the day job and how that maybe like inspires some SF null thinking from you? Mostly fluid flow, fluid mechanics. So things, water flowing in pipes, gases moving underground, just all sorts of fluid mechanics stuff is my thing. So kind of the basis of some structural engineering questions and things going on there. Yeah, structural engineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, which is kind of my whole, that's my core discipline. I'm a chemical engineer. Um, So yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, it kind of lends itself naturally to sort of a science fictional kind of mindset because you're, you're running the simulation because you don't know what's going to happen, right? And so writing a story is sort of a way of taking the idea in your head, which is, I mean, it's all just a simulation. The story is just a story, right? But kind of directing the outcome more, like actually kind of being able to pull the levers of it in some really kind of exciting ways. Yeah, and that's something I I talk about that process a bit in my first collection called Incomplete Solutions. And then I expand on it a little bit in the introduction to convergence problems. A lot of my, I do say a lot of parallels between 
um, my day job as an engineer and my writing. And in that process of thinking about what if, um, coming up with different approaches to figuring out how to solve a problem. And then in some cases where you're dealing with uncertainty, running different kinds of simulations and scenarios, especially it lends itself very easily to future thinking, which is what a lot of science fiction writing is, right? It's uh, what mm-hmm. if, and then you run a detailed simulation of how would characters react? How would governments react? How would environments change if a certain yeah. thing happened? So yeah, there is a parallel there. Yeah, yeah. My um, my husband, Husbeast, he, he works in uh, the world of um, sort of operations management and computer programming. And when I think about how kind of storytelling falls into the world of engineering and programming and kind of all of that, um, that what if thinking, I think a lot about some of the acronyms they throw around in his universe um, for when they, they get a call from someone in their line of work who's struggling to use some kind of technology or whatever that he's responsible for building and for uh, helping to oversee. And one of those acronyms, you may have heard this one before, um, is PEBCAC. Um, yeah. Problem exists between, exists between keyboard and user chair. And user, yeah. Yeah. Oh, between keyboard yeah. and chair. I've, I've seen other ones where problem exists between, um, between keyboard and user. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. similar variants yeah. of that. PebCal or PebCAC kind of thing. And I kind of wonder, like, for you, for storytelling, when we have these convergence problems, right, going back to the title of the anthology, is it, how much of it do you suppose is a PebCAC thing? Like, the technology maybe is inevitable, and it's us who have to adapt or to change. I don't I don't think anything is inevitable. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing I have learned as an engineer is that almost everything is storytelling. And the root of everything that happens in a lot of our lives is actually the kinds of stories we tell ourselves. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of our experience is dictated by whether we... It's by the kind of story you tell yourself when you're approaching a situation. So, for example... Um, when, when you're coming up with an equation to solve a certain problem, you make a set of assumptions. You define boundary conditions. You set up an approach and you then apply that and see if it works. All of that is storytelling. The yeah. assumptions you choose to make is you tell, us, you tell yourself a story about how things should work. The boundary conditions you choose to define, you're telling yourself a story about how you think, you know, the system is set up and then you apply it and you test it um, against the reality and you see. And coming up with a lot of that is storytelling. Some of it is philosophy. It's informed by information and things like that. But at the end of the day, it is largely also storytelling. So the human experience, I think sometimes people like to draw these clean lines between emotion and logic and say storytelling versus fact. Whereas mm-hmm. the reality is there's not so much a clean line between them as there is like a blurry smear between the two. And we're all just navigating our way between them at every point in time. Now see, I'm a, I, uh, in my day job, I am a, a, a software QA technician. So I test things to mm-hmm. see if they're going to work. We also have an act, uh, uh, um, 
abbreviations and stuff and 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 terms that we use for things that don't work uh, like android and windows like those are the ones that that we use the most so that was <laughs> that that was totally for cannoli joe and stace so yeah sort of yeah that that, en- that encompasses most of the problems right there yeah right there. <laughs> so i mean going back to this idea that if everything is storytelling right like for you at some point like every writer it it may not be like a singular lightning strike kind of moment it may just be like a whole process in their lives but i'm kind of interested like for you where did the where did the exposure to speculative thinking that made you say i want to write this i want to make this i want to use this this whole sort of genre and its tools to explore the things i want to explore like where did that start Oh, that's an easy question to answer. Um, like most things in life, I blame my parents um, <laughs> for that. No, my, my, my parents were both, um, they both passed away now, but they were both very curious people about, about the world. And they had lots of books in the house. And my dad was a huge fan of science fiction. He was also an engineer. and My mom studied English literature. So I guess I'm the intersection of that Venn diagram. Um, being the middle child and exactly in between engineering and literature, science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there were lots of science fiction books in the house and I started reading them pretty early. Um, I will say I did not understand half of what I was reading, but I, I loved the I loved the feeling that you get sometimes from reading, reading science fiction of this estrangement that mm-hmm. you feel that there's an estrangement and a familiarity at the same time that's kind of giving you a push-pull effect at every point in time. There's strange terms, there's strange ideas, but at the same time, it kind of sounds wonderful and there's a bit of familiarity in the humanity and in the drive to understand what's going on. So you stick with it. And that push-pull between estrangement and familiarity has been what has kept me coming back to reading speculative fiction and to writing it. I like finding that that um, dual estrangement and familiarity at the same time. And for me, a lot of time it comes from noticing parallels between things that seem like they have no parallels. Um, like between, for example, um, string theory and ancient Yoruba mythology. You would think these two things have nothing to do with each other, but then you think about it enough and you find like, wait, there's actually something here. And then mm-hmm. I start to dig into it and research it, and I'm excited by that idea. And I want to see what if it actually could work or if it did work that way. And that's usually where a lot of the time that's kind of how my stories come come to me. It's just two or three things kind of synthesizing together to make this new interesting thing that I enjoy playing around with until, you know, it's a complete yeah. story. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned the the idea of connecting string theory and Yoruba mythology, one of the things that I started thinking about was just from your position as as a Nigerian author um, who has traveled the world, who has been many places, you know, you've, you have a, a broad experience of the world and working in it and living in it. It must be like both exciting and a little bit weird to kind of finally see the Western, particularly American reading audience catching up to in a lot of ways, 
where the world of Nigerian speculative fiction has been, the world of larger African speculative spaces have been for a while. Like on the one hand, sort of heartening to kind of see those borders dropping a little bit and people becoming more omnivorous and people becoming more uh, kind of global in their reading, but also a little bit like it's about time you got caught up, huh? Like I I sort of wonder how you process that. I mean, to be honest, I don't think about it too much. Um, people encounter things when they do and how they do. And, you know, so much of life is random molecules interacting in interesting and unpredictable ways. So on the one hand, yes, it is a bit weird to see the interest in um, African speculative fiction broadly. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's nice that there are so many people interested. And not just that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say just not just that they're interested. I've met people that have discussed details of mm-hmm. certain stories with me. And I think it's it's doing for a lot of people what, um, what speculative fiction did for me as a young reader, which is, you know, finding that estrangement and familiarity at once. They're seeing elements of what's familiar in our speculative fiction, which they might not have come across before, but they're seeing those familiar threads with what they've read from their own backgrounds and their own cultures. But there's also a bit of estrangement, either from the cultural aspect or just from new ideas or from thinking about things from an unusual angle that they might not have seen before. And as someone that loves that process, I I can't hold it against anyone. Um, <laughs> we should all be reading each other's work. I've 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 talked for with other authors about what it would mean to have a truly global science fiction, speculative fiction literature, and to me, it it would essentially mean everybody, including everyone else, when they think about the future, but at the same time, everyone also reading every, everyone else's story. And if it was just, you know, the rest of the world reading speculative fiction from the U.S., you know, North America and Europe, it's not truly global um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a kind of literature. And I think we're just starting to approach that actual internationality, if I can say that. No, I think pretty sure that's a word. Yeah. Patrick, Patrick, internationality, word? I think it's a word. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. So if Patrick <laughs> believes. I believe. That's that's good enough. That's always good enough for me. Cool. You know, I, you mentioned a lot of times that like familiarity and the push pull, like the the familiar and the unfamiliar. Um, and you know, Patrick writes, and I write as well. And you know, we we're blessed to talk to lots of different writers uh, every couple of weeks and get some really good conversations. And and it kind of makes me think about when I write and and when some of these other folks that we've talked to write, they sometimes talk about sort of responding to other authors or almost like being in conversation with them. So I wonder when you're pushing, you're pulling, you're seeing the familiar and the unfamiliar, are there certain authors who you feel like you're, you're trying to kind of engage with their work in a certain sort of way or, or mm-hmm. respond to it, or are you just worried about doing your own thing? It sometimes, yes. Um, this is one of those, you know, sometimes maybe kind of answers it, I, it, for me, it largely depends on the story. Um, I, as I said, I'm I I'm a speculative fiction reader. I started that way as a young child, and I was reading my dad's books, which were mostly paperbacks of classic science fiction from 
well, classic American science fiction from the 70s and the 80s. So there's a lot of Arthur C. Clarke in there. There's a lot of Isaac Asimov. There's a lot of Larry Niven, um, Jerry Purnell, that kind of thing, um, Codwin Smith. So I, I, I started that kind of literature early. But at the same time, I was also reading a lot of um, African literature more broadly because my mother was, as I said, she studied literature. So the books were all in the house. And somewhere those two kind of synthesized. And I essentially, I like to say, I graduated from being a reader to also a writer, but I'm st- I started as a reader. So a lot of the time when I get an idea for a story, sometimes I can tell what that story reminds me of even before I've written it. And in some, time, in some cases when that happens, I actually might go back and reread the story and then be in conversation with it. Um, other times I don't see anything like it and I just feel like I've come up with something that's kind of my own thing and I just run with it. Um, so it really does depend a lot on the story. For example, in this collection, um, Convergence Problems, the longest story in there is actually a novella. Um, it's about almost 30,000 words long. And it's about a domed city um, that people cannot actually escape and everything is run and controlled um, by a central AI. And as I was writing that story, like the ideas were running at me, but I could see the parallels between um, that story and Arthur C. Clarke's The City and Stars, Um, which... Again, very different setting because that story, if I remember correctly, is set like millions of years in the future. But this is set maybe 20 to 30 years in our future. But I could see the parallels between what the two characters wanted, the rough setup of being in a domed city, everything controlled externally for you. But then beyond that, um, I introduce elements of Yoruba mythology. I'm kind of paralleling what's happening in this future timeline with an old Yoruba legend. Again, one of my favorite things is finding those parallels. So yes, the answer is, it depends on the story. It's both. It's both. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Um, It's it's always interesting to me um, to kind of get those it's both answers because I feel like the it's both answer is the more honest answer not to call out oh, yeah. any past guests or anything but i mean just <laughs> i don't know like if anybody asked me to sort of peg myself as a creative person say like nope here's here's the line in the sand this is me i'm always on this side of it then i don't know it wouldn't it wouldn't work it just wouldn't work. I, I i say this all the time at work and at home as well the correct answer is almost always maybe <laughs> or it's, <laughs> it's a very speculative answer <laughs> <laughs> there, the, you, you're you're drilling down to the reason that everywhere online I am ATFMB, all things mm-hmm. from my brain, because I can't peg down to one thing. So There's the no common way. denominator is a Patrick. Yes, it's just yeah. all things. <laughs> and sometimes we 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 change our minds all the time as well. Um, I've written a. That's story not true. Oh, yeah, actually, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. of mind. course, yes. <laughs> we, we're constantly changing. Our minds are changing. We're getting new experience, new context. We're not even made of the same molecules day to day, right? There's this constant shedding and aggregation of new things. We're, we're, we are not the same. Nothing is static. So 
yes, please feel free to change your mind at all times. This is based this on is why we reasonable need, inference. <laughs> this is yeah. why we need the Heisenberg compensator before we can have a transporter out of Star Trek. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean that would that would help, but it also cut down on random plot lines where like where's there's the one with Tuvok and Neelix or something got fused Tuvix. into a Tuvix. Tuvix. Yep. Oh, yeah, Tuvix. So we could just Oof. yeah, we sort of. Yeah, that was that was. I, I will I will throw it out there since you went there. Uh, there is an amazing episode of Lower Decks where that happens mm-hmm. again. Oh no! Uh, and this time it's an engineer uh, who who gets merged with a uh, with the doctor, and they decide that uh, Janeway's solution isn't going to happen to them, and they just start two vixing everybody on the crew. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> That's one way of. Fixing yep. the problem. Fixing it, yeah. We're just gonna we're just gonna build a transporter and we're just gonna start shoving people in there and two fixing them and good luck trying to kill us all. <laughs> it was hilarious. I I have not started watching Lower Decks, but um, yeah, I, I kind of I used I used to be a big Star Trek fan, and then I think I stopped after the third season of Discovery, and I haven't watched anything since. So yes, thank you for reminding me to jump back in. I. I absolutely adore Picard, Lower Decks. Lower Decks. I, mm-hmm. I adore Lower Decks. I, I love the humor. I love what they're doing. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I totally get it. I get the humor. Mm-hmm. I get what they're poking fun mm-hmm. at. I, I love all the references that they make. Um, and I also, I love Strange New Worlds. And they did mm-hmm. a crossover episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a Lower Decks crossover episode with Strange New Worlds, that is one of the best episodes I've seen in a really, really long time of any kind of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. You're tempting huge, me. Huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> huge fan. But I think, me. like, okay. to Wale's point before about, like, we have to, we're, we're always sort of changing and aggregating and, and, and all of that. I think one of the things that may have initially been a hard sell for some kind of, like, Trekkie purists in the world of, like, Lower Decks or even Strange New Worlds is the idea that it, has a sort of tongue-in-cheek meta-awareness of the whole Star Trek language and universe, right? And that because it has that meta-awareness, it speaks that language back to itself, kind of with love, but also with tongue firmly implanted in cheek the whole time, right? And so I think that that I think, I mean, I don't know, if we kind of think about how speculative fiction people can kind of get about the stuff that we love, particularly when it's like big name franchise kind of thing. We get so, and I'm using a very general we here, we can get so invested in like our vision of what that thing is or it means or who it's supposed to speak to or whatever, that when some variation of it emerges, that that variation becomes the enemy, right? Because it, right. it stands in opposition to, you know, whatever this like downhill rolling Katamari of new stuff the, is. Yeah, the way the way to explain that with brevity is it's the it's the get off my lawn version of science fiction. It yeah. is. Yeah. 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 Science fiction is the, whatever this thing is that I love, this is the only thing. And when you try to do something else that's not this thing that I love, get off my lawn. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is a terrible way to approach. It's it's horrible. I think yeah. entertainment there, in general. There, there. I, I'm. I I look at it from a standpoint of you know. I am. I am. 
I was in the comic book stores in the 80s and 90s talking about this stuff with people and wishing that we had more Star Trek, wishing that we had more Star Wars, wishing that we had, you know, good adaptations of comic book things. Because at that time we had like the Incredible Hulk on TV. We had uh, had been done. Uh, they had done uh, Wonder Woman in the 70s, Wonder Woman. right? Yeah. They, they just had these terrible adaptations of these these properties that we all loved. And now I'm living in a renaissance because all these things are coming to life on screens, big and small. And for the most part, I'm, I'm happy. I'm excited. Like, are there some stinkers? Absolutely. There's some stinkers DC. And if you, (laughs) if you just look at like all of it, I'm just happy. I'm happy to have all of it. It's kind Uh, of a luxury to to have too much. You get to pick when we get, that's the, yeah. yeah, When we, yeah. Yeah. And and, and, like, it's never been like this before. And, and so and, for the most part, I'm people, happy. people get to experiment. Yeah. People get to experiment yes. and try different ideas. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, this is actually, again, com- kind of coming back to my collection convergence problems. I like to experiment a lot with mm-hmm. not just story ideas, but even story format. Um, mm-hmm. I have a few stories in there that are formatted in different ways. One of them is like a blog post Another one of them is formatted as a patent memorandum document with, you know, comments in the mm-hmm. document itself, kind of telling a story in the background. Um, I, I, I love doing all that stuff. So I think the, as, as a science fiction fan, as a speculative fiction fan, the idea of trying different things that are not what we are used to or not what we've been getting to me, is kind of almost fundamental to the experience. I'm always looking for a book that shows me something I haven't seen before, like an idea or concept or character or point of view I haven't had mm-hmm. before. Maybe it doesn't work 100%. Maybe whatever, but I might not love everything about it, but I will be impressed by it, and I will be glad to have had the opportunity mm-hmm. to see something like that. You know, So I, 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 to me, the change... And constantly experimenting and trying new things are fundamental to, I would say, speculative fiction, creation, enjoyment. Um, they, to me, they're kind of the bedrocks of it. I can't imagine, mm-hmm. I can't imagine the genre without it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually, I'm thinking back to a completely different collection that you you edited rather than um, being the sole author for your African Futurism uh, collection from, from a couple of years back. And I wanted in particular, and maybe this is the right time to do it, to kind of drill down into, there's been kind of like a... I don't want to overstate it. Um, it's not. I wouldn't call it a conflict exactly, but there's been some tension surrounding the use of the word African futurism. Um, anybody who follows SF and keeps up with Nadia Korofor, for instance, is really familiar with her stance on labeling her her work and her creative cycle as she's an African futurist, not an Afrofuturist. And I'm really interested in if you if you can kind of pull back the curtain on that a little bit and give us some of your perspective on that idea of labeling, you know, and how that does or doesn't kind of fundamentally speak to what a story is. So, okay. This again is one of those, we kind of discussed it where the honest answer is it kind of yeah. does and it kind of doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah. 
but they're both important in different ways. And sometimes choosing when it's important is more important than knowing if it's important. So what do I mean by that? Um, Afrofuturism is a term that was coined to try to describe the science fiction, speculative fiction, speculative arts in general that was being produced by essentially Black authors, African-American authors in the U.S., you know, pre-1990. It was coined in, I believe, 1991 by Mark Derry. And that was the original application and intention for it. So it was mostly describing the African-American experience um, and imagination. Along the way, there have been revisions of the definition of Afrofuturism, expanding it to the rest of the world, um, to include you know, Afro-Latin, Afro-Brazilian, Caribbean, yeah. um, Black British, and of course, African um, work done by African authors on the continent. At this, so this is sometimes what people call, you know, Afro, Afrofuturism 2.0, Afrofuturism 3.0. There have been lots of very interesting, you know. <laughs> I like the point O's. It's very technical. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. It makes it seem like it's like a programming <laughs> language. It's like, okay, we're all operating Afrofuturism 3.0 now. We've, it's improved. Um, and there's lots of great papers written about this, which are all very interesting. But at the end of the day, the original intent of Afrofuturism as a movement was it was centered around the West, right? It's Americans. Yes, they are Black Americans, African Americans, but the experience is fundamentally different from Africans living in Africa today. They have different challenges, different connections to the culture, different imaginations of the future. There is a connection there. There always will be. Um, but there is also a, a difference. And I think this is what some people have tried to point out, um, including um, Nnedi Okorafor, most famously. Um, other people have thought about this and engaged with it. There's essays talking about concepts of African futurism that you can trace back, um, written by other academics as well. But... African futurism essentially centers Africa. This is the fundamental difference. Um, there is a huge overlap. So I, I try to think of it as, again, there's no clean distinction between the two. There's no border where you can say, oh, you've crossed the border from Afrofuturism to African futurism. Where's your visa? Um, no. <laughs> it's more of a, it's more of like a Venn diagram and there's a huge part of it that overlaps, but there's sections of both that don't. And the whole concept of African futurism is that when we are imagining the future, when we're coming up with these science fictional concepts and ideas, we are starting from Africa first, not say, how does an African living in, or you know, an African-American living in New York think about the future, right? A hundred years in the future, as opposed to someone living in Botswana today, think about the future. And we center Africa first as the root of creation. Because the problem you do find with some Afrofuturist thinking is that they still center the place where they live because that's what they're most familiar with. That's what comes naturally. There is that connection to traditional Western speculative fiction that's hard to break if you're geocentered in that place. So African futurism just seeks to say, okay, 
what if we think of an Africa first um, approach? And to bring it back to myself and my own writing, I think African futurism is a useful label. I don't use it for all my work, but I did edit the African futurism anthology because I wanted to essentially show by example to say certain stories are African futurism. I don't like the kind of lazy reductive approach that some people use, which is all African authors are writing African futurism. Um, that's wrong. You kind of need to think about the content of the story. If I, as an African author, write a story about a French person living in, I don't know, Colorado, you know, working on something about going to Jupiter or whatever, and it has nothing to do with living in Africa, Africans, African culture, heritage, nothing. That's not an African futurist story. Um, Just because I wrote it doesn't make it so. So I write everything. I write general SF. Some stories I've written are Afrofuturist because I am thinking about them from a Western, non-African point of view. But the large majority of my work is African futurist, if I had to label it. I usually don't. (laughs) Fair. Fair. And I will will throw it out as as someone who uh, spent a good chunk of his career as a digital marketer or a marketer in general. Um, a lot of these things are creating, created by marketing departments because they have to fit things into a hole in order to try to sell it, yeah. uh, which which kind of sucks. Um, but I do have a question for you. When do you think you can have that story about the French person living in Colorado? <laughs> like when when can we see that? Is that going to be like six weeks, a month? Like, uh, like more like six years. Oh, like six Actually, years. Actually, you know, it's more like six, it's going to be real good, Patrick. Like Got to let it cook. It will, it will be the, great. Yeah, it will be wonderful, do you, do you, I promise. Do you need me to send you some pictures of the Rocky Mountains to kind of get you going? <laughs> no, no, I'm all good. No, I'm all good. Uh, I will just take my time and let that one simmer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, I, 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 jest, I jest, but we do actually have a lot of aerospace companies here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I mean, de- depending on who you talk to, we also have Cheyenne Mountain and Cheyenne Mountain supposedly contains the Stargate. So. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Cool. That's credible. That's credible yeah. intelligence right there. <laughs> so on, on the subject of, of using our intelligence, do we have the energy for one last leap of faith into uh, picks of the week? So I need to lead with an apology. Wally, I was so excited to get to talk to you and record with you. I've pre-ordered your book and everything, and I'm just like hovering over my Audible waiting for it to show up, Um, that we didn't even talk about picks of the week in the green room. So Mm -hmm. um, in the interest of helping you navigate that, I'm going to make Patrick lead, uh, picks of the week being each of us choosing something that has brought us joy that we think other people could check out and and hopefully be made happy by too. Awesome. I like this. And you want me to to go first. Okay. Uh, So (laughs) um, my my pick this week is... uh, Believe it or not, it's a it's a comic book movie. It's the Marvels, okay. and uh, this has been out for a while. I did not go see it in the theater because going out to see it in the theater requires me to put on real pants uh, and then leave the house. And I prefer to be in my Star Trek jammies, sitting here at my desk. So uh, 
they, it's been it's been released on digital now, so you can you can actually purchase it digitally. Uh, I don't think it's going to hit Disney Plus until sometime in February, if you if you want to be there. But I wanted to I wanted to support the movie, even though I didn't go out and get it. Like I wanted to support it by buying it, so I I, I bought the digital release, and I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. I I I, I love um, and adore, I, and I know I'm not going to pronounce her name right, Iman. Valani is that her name? She she plays Miss Marvel, maybe. And uh, she is she is me. <laughs> she is she is like every Marvel fan that was ever a Marvel fan, except she gets to play a Marvel character and she gets to fangirl over everybody inside the movies themselves and inside the shows. Yeah, yeah. And so her reactions to meeting Carol Danvers, meeting Nick Fury, being in space, having all these things happen to her. Is, is like a fan reaction. And so this movie, to me, I, I absolutely loved it. It was so much fun. Uh, they carried over the the elements of the Miss Marvel TV show that I also loved, which was her family. Her family was with her. And, and like, because there's this, this close... Uh, there's this close family and you know, the, all this stuff that ha- like it, it ends up happening uh, to them in this movie as well. And I, I just, uh, it was just such a good movie. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and I did love there, there is the, the end credit scene Easter egg thing that I also uh, liked very much. So it, for me, I don't get the criticism. Like I really don't. I love Brie Larson as, as Captain Marvel. Uh, uh, oh, I don't remember the name of the actress who plays uh, Monica Rambeau, but uh, she's really, really good in that as well. Uh, of course, Nick Fury is in it. Uh, it's just such a good movie. I had a lot of fun with it. So I don't get the criticism. It, it was a great movie. Had a lot of fun. Yep. Please go watch yep. it. Nice. Nice. So so pick of the week. Wally, what do you think? What, what's brought you joy? What has brought me joy? You know what? I, since we're talking about my book, I'll talk about a book that brought me joy. Um, and it is a novel that is that came out about the same time as my first novel last year um, by a friend, um, Lauren Bukis. It's called mm-hmm. Bridge. And it is about a woman who is trying to find her mother across the multiverse. So there's a connection with Miss um, Marvel, I think. I don't know. I haven't seen that yet, but I will now. Um, but with the whole Marvel Universe and the whole multiverse thing going on, um, Lauren Bukas is a South African author. Um, she wrote The Shining Girls, which was a TV show, and this is her latest novel. And it is fun despite being mild, mildly terrifying and having a really, really terrifying um, villain that is like the ultimate bureaucrat that thinks that things need to be maintained in a certain order and just does not appreciate someone jumping across multiverses and is just thinks, no, we need to stop that. Um, so, yeah, it's a great book. It has a really fun tone despite the seriousness um, of some of the issues the reason why she's chasing after her mother and that whole emotional tension there but it's just an expertly paced book um, that also manages to be fun and serious at the same time and like I said mildly terrifying so Bridge by Lauren Bukas Um, if you like 
science fictional, supernatural thriller mystery with great fun characters, yeah, it could be a good book for you. I I, I loved it. I, that sounds I, fantastic. I have I have I have a Lauren story that I could tell really quickly. Uh, okay. I met her when she first came to the United States and did a Worldcon and promote. Uh, I think her first book was it Angry Robot. Was Angry Robot maybe that must be that must be Zoo, Zoo City was that's a second yeah, yeah 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 okay so I, I remember Lee brought her over and brought a bunch of people over and they were doing like a bunch of stuff at Worldcon and I met her and uh, I did an interview with her for SF Signal and and the first thing she's she's she tells me she's like uh, if I'd known Americans were going to have such a hard time pronouncing my last name I would have changed it. <laughs> I would have just changed it. I would have changed it. I would have done a pen name. I would have done something else. And the other part was I used to have this little handheld recorder that I would use at conventions to record things. And uh, I got it uh, based on a, a recommendation from Merlafferty. And I, I had that with me. And the, the trick about that stupid thing was you had to hit record twice. The first time it didn't take. You had to hit it twice every single time. And uh, I was so careful with it. I always did it. And Lauren was the first time ever in my life. I hit that and I hit it and I set it between us and we talked for 45 minutes. And when I looked down at it, it had never started recording. Oof. Oof. And I had to apologize to her. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm so sorry. This, this, this has never happened before. You know, let, do you have the time? She's <laughs> like, yes, we can do it again. I'm like, okay, I hit it. I make sure it's recording. We start over and every like three to five minutes, she's like, can you check it? Is it recording? <laughs> and I would look and be like, yep, it's recording. And she's like, okay. And then we keep going. Done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was so funny. Anyway, that's my Lauren story. Tracy, what's your pain? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so I, uh, for those folks who are part of um, the sort of functional nerds family online, uh, you may have been following me and known that I was traveling up until recently. I just got back from the Navajo Nation a few days ago as of this recording. Um, and there's lots of things that I could say about that. But one thing I'll, I will say um, is I spent a lot of time in airports reading. Uh, as part of my travels. And I was really delighted to be able to dig into my to be read pile for some things that I had had for a while and just hadn't gotten to. Uh, and about a year ago at this time, we had uh, Moses Ose Otomi on uh, mm. for his novella, The Lies of the Ajungo. And um, spoiler alert, really excited to say we're going to have uh, Moses on again in the near future for the sequel to it, which is an interesting kind of sequel for reasons, but we'll get to that. Um, but I finally had the chance to read The Lies of the Ajungo um, on my flight to Phoenix. And it was... I am not going to say it was a delight because it is a hard story. There is a lot of hard stuff that goes down in this book. Um, but it was just, you know, you talked about uh, pacing, you know, when you were talking about Lauren Bucas's book, uh, Wale, and this, this sense of pacing, the choice of detail, like exactly the right details and nothing more. Um, the, the kind of sensitivity to the mind of a 13-year-old character and how completely kind of essentially colonized uh, by, by growing up the way he does um, is captured in the prose. Uh, it is brisk. It is beautifully written. Um, it has a gut punch uh, kind of quality to it in a number of places. And so if you have been listening to us long enough to remember uh, when Moses was on as a guest, great. Glad to have you back. Um, but if you were wondering, eh, should I go read? Go read the book. You really need this 
Uh, so the lies of the Ajungo uh, kept me good company. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. All right. Yeah. So, folks, uh, we've been talking here with Wole Dalabi, uh, who's convergence problems comes out so soon and if you're the sort of person who likes to kind of dip your toe into the style of an author try out a bunch of their stuff then you can get yourself convergence problems and then backtrack to his debut novel which came out this past fall um and kind of have the whole the whole gestalt there for you well thanks so much for being with us can you tell folks where to find you like out in the the digital universe where you're going to be where to find your stuff I am out there floating on the internet. Uh, you can find me at W Talabi. Um, that's W T A L A B I. Not Wale, not at Wale Talabi. That's someone else. Poor guy gets a lot of messages from people looking for me. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's another Wale Talabi. So I'm at W Talabi on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, TikTok. And I'm just regular Wale Talibi on Facebook if you want to follow me there. Um, I post a bunch of stuff that I'm doing, events, book stuff, giveaways sometimes. So always appreciated. And if anyone wants to read the opening story from my collection for free, thanks to the publisher, it's on the publisher website, um, on the Astra Publishing House website. If you just search Astra Publishing House Convergence Problems, on the page to buy the book or to pre-order the book, there's a link to read the first story. I'll give you a small tease. It's about what I think um, it would be like if AI really could create art. And that's all I'll say about that. Nice. That is a, that is a good tease because that's on a lot of people's minds right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being with us, Wole. No problem. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Thanks Patrick. And so it came to pass that one year shall end, and a new year shall begin. Welcome, dear listeners, to the year 2024. Will it be a better year than its predecessor? Only time will tell. My new dual monitor mount thingy from my desk toppled over and sent my coffee cup over the edge, splashing coffee all over my desk, my clothes, the carpeted floor beneath my feet. Looking a lot like 2023 there, 2024. Hey, have you ever heard of Beyond the Trope? They've got a podcast just like we do, only they have announced it will be ending on their 10th anniversary, which makes me sad. But Giles and Michelle have planned to go out with a bang-up list of guests you won't want to miss. So go check them out, Beyond the Trope. Also, I win. Also, also... For us, don't forget to share this episode with your own friends, and if you haven't already done so, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash functional nerds. If you like what we do, feel free to toss us a couple of bucks a month to help pay the bills. Also, 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 like us, or give us a star or a review on your preferred podcast platform, wherever you're grabbing episodes from or streaming. It helps, and we appreciate it. Now, did you know that in the 1960s, the CIA tried using cats to gather intel on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies? They equipped the cats 
with battery-operated microphones and antenna to record data. I wonder how that turned out. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Hello, Patrick. It is I, Clayface. Okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.